You're listening to Inside the Park with Marky Mark. Hey, yo, what's up? This is me, Marky Mark. And now, coming at you live from the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, here's your host, Mark Jean-Louis. And welcome back to another episode of Inside the Park with Marky Mark. We're the only podcast here in the Pioneer Valley that covers all the bases. I'm your host, Mark Jean-Louis, and again to my left is UMass Sports Weekly Director Jesse Mayfield. She and Jesse, welcome back on the show today. Yeah, it's good to be back, Marky Mark. It is a fantastic day to be here with, down with you at, at the WMUA Studios. And today we have a surprise for you, but oh, no, not a surprise. You knew about this before you showed up today. You asked for this a couple weeks ago on our show, and we finally decided to uh, grant you your wish. Today, in honor of the Boston Marathon, it is going to be the all-Boston edition of Inside the Park with Marky Mark. Hallelujah. It's about time, man. You freaking anti-homer. You called me a huge anti-homer for this, but I was like, you know what? It's the Boston Marathon. It's a beautiful day. Actually, probably it's going to be raining, but it's the Boston it's Marathon. It's a beautiful day right now. It's a beautiful day right now. We're as sticking we, with that. We'll stick with that, but uh, yeah, it's a beautiful day. Boston Marathon happening. Well, day tomorrow. off from work. Well, tomorrow, day off from work, day off from school. So, why not dedicate this entire episode to Inside the Park with Marky Mark about all Boston sports? Now, to begin, before we start our actual show, Aaron Hernandez being sent away to prison for life after the murder of Odin Lloyd. Let me just start off with your thoughts on that, on that well, decision. Honestly, I'm just kind of glad it's over. And I'm glad we won't have to hear about it anymore. It it kind of just drives me nuts with all this big-name trial coverage, just how long it drags on for. And, I mean, you got to understand just how impossible it must have been to do jury selection for a trial like that because the whole idea is, do you know who Aaron Hernandez is? Yes, you're off the jury. Well, that covers just most of everywhere. Um, so I'm glad it's over, and I'm glad we don't have to hear about it anymore. I really couldn't agree with you more that the fact that it's over and that we really don't have to hear about this trial anymore. I mean, a friend of mine has an Aaron Hernandez jersey. He was telling me this funny story about him possibly getting called for a jury duty for Aaron for the Aaron Hernandez trial. He can't be on it because he has an Aaron Hernandez jersey. Go figure, huh? Exactly. I mean, that's, that's the problem is, you know, those biases come out and it's hard to find somebody who doesn't have that bias. I mean, they had the same problem with the... Uh, Boston Marathon bomber trial, which I know we'll get to we'll a little, get in, in a little, little bit, bit. Yep. but I mean that's just the problem with these high-profile trials. It's like, how do you find someone who hasn't heard of the person unless you like move the trial to another area, which they flat out refuse to do in both cases. But I mean, just looking at the trial as a whole, I mean, I mean, I guess there's a lot of holes that people can say to this case. You know, no murder weapon. A whole lot of it was circumstantial evidence. But even aside from all that. I mean, it's going to sound a little bit remissive and a little bit, you know, beside the point, but as far as showing up to Jenna Janovey's class on Thursdays, we may no longer have to hear about how one of our classmates' father built Aaron Hernandez's house anymore. What do, you, what do you think about that? Well, as long as that means we don't have to hear you shamelessly plugging this show every class <laughs> and I do do immediately that a lot. afterwards, I do do then that a lot. yes, I am certainly glad. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, we have two classes left. We'll see what happens. But um, let's get into actually what let's, we wanted to talk about today. We'll start off the show with uh, the uh, Boston bombing trial that's been going on w- over the last two years. Again, you know, just rewind two years ago, a very sad day in the history of Boston sports where two bombs went off at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. And Johozar... Johar Zarnayev. You can you. do this. I had to, you know, rehearse the pronunciation of this, like, so many times before the show. Uh, Johar Zarnayev got that right. He's on the stand right now. A lot, he's on trial right now, and there's a lot he's of... He's been pronounced guilty. 
been pronounced guilty on all, on all 30 counts. counts, and now the question really is, should he receive the death penalty or not? So we'll start with that question. Jesse, I'll start with you. Well, I may be a little biased here just because I'm, when I think of this question, I lean towards being against the death penalty for mm-hmm. a number of different reasons, but I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to try to speak a little more objectively about this, but I still don't believe that the death penalty should be used. I mean, A, just because this took place in Massachusetts. I know they're thinking, of, you know, it's a federal case, it's terrorism, it's all that, mm-hmm. but still, you talk about this was a crime that took place in Boston. This is Correct. the one that rocked the Boston community, and Massachusetts does not allow the death penalty. Correct. They don't allow that. And then my second thing is, I mean, I saw an article about this that even the family of the eight-year-old boy who died in the bombing are saying, don't have a long, drawn-out sentencing of trying to give this guy the death penalty. Because the fact is, death penalty cases, they take so much longer than life sentencing. I mean, we'd still be talking about Aaron Hernandez if there was a possibility of the death penalty, but since there isn't for his case, he just gets life in prison and we get to move on. I mean, that's the whole point is, you know, the case is going to go on forever. It's going to cost, it's going to cost millions, you know, to, to do. And I, I just don't see the practicality of that. And I don't, and I know people want to get the emotional release of getting the revenge and saying, okay, if you do this, you pay with your life. But honestly, I feel like the better way to move on from this is to just move on. Just give him life in prison and move on. That's not exactly... Life in prison isn't exactly a pleasing sentence. It's still justice. I mean, that's just that's just my feeling on it. What's yours? Going on with this whole Zarnayev case, I mean, I try to, you know, rattle my brain about this case for countless days now, and I feel like I never came down to a specific answer regarding this situation, but, I mean, just one thing that I was looking into before the show began was just, I mean, just looking at it from an outside perspective, I mean, would I necessarily be against giving him the death penalty? Absolutely not. I would not necessarily be against that. I mean, you look at, you know, the intense that he had during the Boston Marathon, three died, about 200 were injured. You know, a bomb of that magnitude, two bombs actually of that magnitude, at a place, you know, where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, gather for a huge event. They're, the intent to do harm to a wide mass of people was definitely there, and that would be the reason why I would not be against giving him the death penalty. But, I mean, as far as that concerned, I, I looked at, you know, the statistics for the state of Massachusetts and in the Boston area in general, and in that regards, I would actually be in the minority for that, which I guess I'm not really too surprised of. You look at the state of Massachusetts, a very liberal state, a state with a lot of Democrats. A lot of people don't necessarily believe in the death penalty, but the whole idea of putting him, giving him a life sentence in prison would be just how much would it cost exactly to keep him in a you know, Massachusetts state facility they, for that they've, long They've done studies time. on this. It costs more to give a prisoner the death penalty than it does to give him life in prison. I, I understand because I've thought of that myself. I'm like, well, at the same time, it's going to cost money to keep this guy in prison for life. It actually costs more to try and execute a guy because you have to go through the extra amount of trial that you have to go through to get the death penalty. Um, You have to go through all those extra legal processes. That costs money. And then you have to go through the execution, which also costs money. Um, So it's actually a lot more costly to give someone the death penalty than it is to give them life in prison. So, I mean, but the fact of the matter is, as much as practically speaking... The death penalty does not make sense, you know, whether it's wrongful convictions or high cost or the fact that it takes forever and you 
don't get closure for much longer than you would if you gave the guy life in prison. There's always going to be that feeling among people of, I want this person to pay with their life for what they did. And, you know, just to bounce off of that, I came up with sort of like, right now I just came, sort of just came up with my own opinion on this. The difference between giving, I guess, somebody, you know, the death penalty and getting somebody life in prison is, you know, should we, you know, kill this person right away or, you know, just, you know, natural time, just take its course over the, while he's in prison. And you look at all those prisoners that receive a life sentence in prison, they do not, you know, live out their full lives. They're, they're going to die at some point in prison, not to, you know, give like, you know, a pessimistic look on it, but... As far as, you know, I mean, I still wouldn't be opposed to giving him the death penalty regardless of what the cost may be, exactly what the gap of the cost is between death penalty and life in prison, I don't know. Perhaps you can enlighten me on that a little bit later. But, I mean, if, I, mean I still wouldn't be against, you know, giving him life in prison either just because, you know, you know prison conditions, they can be terrible. And yeah. the fact that, you know, he's going to be spending the rest of his life there, the, you know, the emotional stress is going to take a toll on him, and I think he's just going to die in prison at a much earlier age than we all expected anyways. I mean, it's going to be tough to fight against a large portion of the rest of the country. A large portion of the rest of the country still has the death penalty. Yep. And I think a lot of the outsiders looking in at a terrorist act want this guy to receive the death penalty. But my hope is that those in Massachusetts stand strong and are able to prevent that. I mean, who knows? It is what it is, but... That's my feeling. Yep, and my last shot for this one is that you look at the stats for the rest of this country, and you would be right about that. The rest of this country is a lot more leaning towards giving him the death penalty than just giving him life in prison. But, you know, just being a Boston matter, the people that are living in Boston are most directly impacted by this. And so the people in Boston are, are more leaning towards giving him life in prison. We'll find out more about that. The sentencing phase will be taking place this Thursday. Moving along to the conversation of the NHL, yes, I know you're happy to hear about this one because I almost never talk about the NHL exclusively on my show, but because of what happened last Wednesday, I feel like I now have to. Last Wednesday, the Boston Bruins have decided to fire their general manager, Peter Shirelli, after just narrowly missing the playoffs this season. So our, my question to you now, Jesse, is was this the right move by the Boston Bruins, and where does this franchise head now? Well, it's hard to say whether or not it's the right move until the next GM comes in. Um, and I can certainly understand um, the argument of, you know, this guy barely missed the playoffs this year. Mm -hmm. The team barely missed the playoffs this year. Yep. They're a year removed from the President's Trophy, two years removed from a Stanley Cup run, or a near Stanley Cup run. Um, Blackhawks defeated that title run. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there have been some questionable financial decisions that have been made by Shirelli over the course of his career. Um, you know, the Tyler Sagan signing just before the lockout season, um, the amount he's paying to guys like Chris Kelly and Milan Lucic, the extension he gave to Riley Smith this year just before Riley Smith fell, off, fell had, had the wheels come off. Mm -hmm. um, so a fair amount of, you know, just questionable decisions. I mean, no GM's going to be perfect, but the fact is, the fact that his financial decision-making has led to the Bruins being in some serious cap trouble the past couple of seasons... Um, the past couple of off-seasons, rather, it just, you know... And still now, actually. Yeah, it's still now. This mm -hmm. is one of those past couple of off-seasons where they've been in some serious cap trouble and just sort of had to figure out, okay, we've got to get rid of somebody. We can't afford to keep everybody. Um, and that's what led to the loss of Jerome McGinley and Johnny Boychuk last off-season, which was just a huge blow to the team um, that they ultimately weren't able to recover from. So, I mean, I can understand it being seen as... Oh, typical Boston fans, they don't win once and they let and they just clean house. But at the same time, he this has been sort of a long time coming in terms of the cap decisions he's made. 
he sort of struggled with that. And you know, I I look when I look at this, I mean, personally myself, I mean, in an ideal world, I wouldn't have fired Peter Shirelli, but I can understand why this decision had to be made because now, I mean. When I sort of look at it, either you know you can axe one person, or you can do what the Florida Marlins did in 1998 and just basically clean out the entire house and just start all over again. Which oh, you know, that worked out so well. Yeah, they they finished what like 120 losses that year. We'll we'll get into that a little bit later, but I mean the fact that the Bruins only missed the playoffs by what two points this year, right behind Pittsburgh and Ottawa. So. You take, like, I don't know, an overtime loss or a loss in the shootout. You take one or two of those, reverse those around, bam, the Bruins get the 8th spot or maybe even the 7th spot. But as far as axing Peter Shirelli goes, uh, I I struggled with this because, yes, I understand, you know, a lot of moves were made during the offseason, you know, trying to save cap space. And aside from that, a lot of questionable decisions were also made in the front office, which has led to where the Bruins are now. Which, they have a lot of players on the team, which sort of contradicts where the NHL is starting to go right now. A lot of fast, young skaters, a lot of attackers, and the Bruins are more of a little bit, sort of where the NHL was about, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. Big, where they have, hard hitters. Yeah, big, a lot of big and hard hitters. I do so. feel like they are making the, transi- the mm-hmm. transition to those faster skaters, though. You're seeing guys like Pasternak and Spooner coming up. They, mm-hmm. they move very well out there on the ice. So, you're seeing that transition... But you're right. The Boston does tend to identify itself as a as a physical, hard hitting team, and that's starting to come back to bite them. You know, at least on the defensive end. Um, you know, Chara is is not what he used to be. Certainly not. I mean, look at he's Galaxy. battled too many injuries. Mm-hmm. He's you getting, know, getting a lot older. He's getting now. significantly he's older. Old he's almost forty. Almost forty. Um, you know. So they have guys like that. They have guys like Milan Lucic, who is a good off- is a fairly good offensive player, but is also there to be very physical, not mm-hmm. be very fast. Um, Agreed. Played very well with some of the speedier guys like uh, Spooner and Pasternak. So I think it is a bit of a balancing act. I think there's still room for those big physical guys, even in this modern NHL. But you're right. It is in, in the, the Bruins do need a bit of an, to sort of adapt to the times and soon. And exactly, as soon as they want to compete in what's becoming a more and more competitively Eastern Conference. But, you know, just going alongside that uh, conversation, a lot of rumors have been also been popping up. What's going to be next for Claude Julien? Is he going to be next to leave, too? What are your opinions on that? Well, there's a good chance of that. I mean, they say a lot of times when the GM comes in, the first thing they want to do is get a new coach because um, you want a guy who's your guy. You know, you don't want to come in and just be trying to work around this already established system. You want to make it yours if you're the GN. And also, you know, Julian's not completely innocent in this. He's done a very yeah, good absolutely. job, but it seems like every year people were calling for his head. Um, just before they made that run to the Stanley Cup Finals, people were saying, is he going to be fired if he doesn't make it far in the playoffs? And he has made he makes questionable rotation decisions. He doesn't give young guys a lot of good chance to prove themselves, strangely enough, Pasternak down to the fourth line late in the season when they were, you know, going down the stretch, which was a strange move given how well that second line was working together. So I can't say for sure because Julian does have has had a fair amount of success here, but I think just how borderline he was already um, before that president's tr- before that Stanley Cup run and the President's Trophy year, and 
I think given some of the questionable moves, I think there's a good chance the new GM comes in and, and kicks Julianne to the curb. Yep. Well, I mean, we're running out of time for the segment, but I'll just uh, chime in with my last parting take on that one because I look at a guy like Claude Julianne, and when things were going well for the Boston Bruins, you know, Claude Julianne was, you know, he's going to be elevated almost as a hero for yep. the Boston Bruins teams. But, you know, when things were starting to go bad for this Boston Bruins franchise, a lot of people are already, you know, starting to call for his job right here. And so, and like you said, when a general manager leaves a team, of course, the next person that's probably going to leave next is going to be the head coach. And, I mean, not even just for the, as far as saying, you know, he's your guy sort of thing, but, you know, just to sort of start fresh with the chemistry a little bit between a brand-new general manager and a brand-new head coach, see who the players adapt to, see who they like, and start to build out fresh that way. The Boston Bruins still have a lot of pieces to remain competitive in the Eastern Conference. And as far as removing Peter Shirley and possibly Claude Julien goes, Maybe a little bit of a setback, but not possibly the worst thing in the world. I think they could possibly rebound from that. We'll take a break. When we come back, Mark Shirelli of the Massachusetts Daily Collegian joins the show to talk about Derek Gordon and the piece he wrote last week about what Derek has gone through in the year following his announcement as an openly gay college athlete. Stay tuned. This is Inside the Park with Marky Mark. Hello and welcome to the newest edition of UMass Sports Weekly, your source for UMass sports. You look at an 0-3, but if they close out those last two games, they could be easily be 2-1. We could be having a completely different discussion. But another thing that he strategized on was defense, defense, defense. And the offensive line is finally stepping up this season. They've really showed that they can do what it takes to win a game. And you have Hoskinen who can swing up this way right into the slot while Eichel drives to the net creating a 2-1-0 in front of Steve Masterless. That can't happen and the Minutemen need to fix that. If you want a chance of winning these games, you have to make sure that the ball gets at the feet of those three players that I just mentioned. And this game was like watched Titanic. It was very entertaining, but you knew how it was going to end. Be sure to check out UMass Sports Weekly Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. only on UVC TV 19. Welcome back to Inside the Park for the Six Minute Man. I'm now joined by Massachusetts Daily Collegiate Sports Editor Mark Shirelli on the phone to catch us up on the latest with Derek Gordon. Mark, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Thanks for having me, Mark. Mark, you go back to last year on April 9th. Big day on the campus of the University of Massachusetts as Derek Gordon comes out as the first openly gay men's college basketball player. Exactly one year later, your piece, Finding His Way, one year after coming out, Derek Gordon prepares to leave UMass was published in the Daily Collegian. Tell us, what went inside the creative process of writing the story, and what made you want to write it? Well, what went into it? Um, first, I guess I'll start uh, a year ago. Um, the day that that story happened, he made that decision, he came out, I think, for me, on a personal level, was a really uh, intriguing day, and I learned a lot about the power of covering a story like that and the power of being involved in the media and telling a story. And as I started to think about it a year later, I wanted to follow up on it because uh, of how important of a day that was and, and how important really it was for the campus and the community and how it seemed like a lot of people really supported Derek Gordon and bought into him. And I wanted to go back a year later and see 
how his life had changed and how things had changed for him. Originally, I wanted to write that story in the lens of one year later, what is it like for an openly gay basketball player to still be playing college basketball? Of course, he later decided to transfer, so it definitely changed how the story was written and, and how I went about reporting it a little bit. But um, the overall lens of it was Derek Gordon one year later, uh, his thoughts. I got a chance to read the story, and one thing that stood out to me, which I believe was said by Sid Zegler, who owns Outsports.com, he said, quote, It's almost like when you get married. The wedding really isn't that big of a deal in the big picture. It's the marriage. Coming out is the same thing. Coming out is one day in the media, and that's it. Well, what's the marriage going to look like? And the fact that the marriage looks pretty good between these gay athletes and these teammates should be talked about more within the media, end quote. I thought that quote was an interesting and fantastic perspective on the whole idea. Sure, yeah, and that was probably the most interesting part of it in learning about it. And I think he mentioned and he said that really being gay and being in the locker room and being a gay member of the basketball team really wasn't strange. It wasn't a big deal. It it was real. The reason he wanted to leave and the thing that soured on him the most throughout the year was, was basketball-related and the fact that he didn't feel he had a big enough role. But he, he said he had a great relationship with his teammates. Um, he said he, he, he felt loved and, and he really enjoyed his time with the community. So uh, I think, by and large, that, that mayor, or what you see after in the marriage, not just that day, April 9, 2014, but what you saw after was very positive. You mentioned his role in the basketball team, and we're about to get into that right now. We mentioned briefly earlier this season about Derek Gordon's offensive game, and there are parts to it that are flawed. His shooting percentage went down by 7.5% from last season. He's not a good three-point shooter, yet he hasn't shied away from letting it be known that he wants the basketball. That wasn't going to happen at UMass, though. Was there any point over the last year where you sensed some unrest and that a possible transfer would take place? He mentioned before the season started to me, I actually wrote a story on him and his three-point shooting before the season, and he said... Um, he, he wasn't sure whether he was going to be back. And at the time, I thought it was weird, and I thought it was odd, but uh, I thought it was more because he, he's hell-bent on making it to the NBA, and, and that was really where he, he was going with that. Um, there was a game, and I was not there. It was a road game in Philadelphia against St. Joe's. UMass lost by, I think it was eight or nine points. And after the game, uh, when Matt Botor and Dan Malone talked to Derek Gordon, he mentioned that there were chemistry issues within the locker room and an issue between uh, players and coaches and not really uh, buying into each other at the moment. And I think after that happened, a lot of us began to wonder, is it the team that has an issue with the coaches or is it Derek Gordon who has an issue with the coaches? And I think uh, as the second half of the season went on, you started to see less of Derek Gordon in impactful minutes. Um, he really didn't have a huge impact uh, on too many games. And, and then you started to sense that, well, maybe this wasn't, not to make a bad pun, but maybe it wasn't the perfect marriage after all. No bad pun taken, but it was clear to me that his offensive identity on the team had begun to diminish as the season wore on. And I did sense from the outside that Derek Gordon was not happy with where he was at. Now, recently you sat down with Matt Vitor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette and Dan Malone of MassLive.com. Matt Vitor said that Derek Gordon wanting to be the guy will scare off a lot of coaches and fear that his wants will disrupt with the chemistry that his team already has. Now, certainly there are programs out there that could use any boost in team chemistry, 
My question to you, Mark, it's easy to pick out the flaws that Derek Gordon has. On and off the court, though, what does he offer that would elevate a program? I think he offers someone who, like you said earlier, he can get to the rim. He, he, there are parts of his game offensively which are very good. If you need a guy to get in the paint, to be physical, to create contact, Derek Gordon's very good at that. If, if you want a guy who can guard people on the perimeter, and I think if you, if you watch the NCAA tournament as a whole, there's a lot of value in someone who can play perimeter defense. And I think Derek Gordon can do that. I think uh, what Derek Gordon brings to the table, I think, is perfect if you want a role player. If, if it's a player who understands that, hey, he isn't the number one or number two option, but he's someone who can get you 10 or 12 points, but do the other little things that can bring a team over the hump. Well, I think what Matt was alluding to is uh, Derek Gordon definitely wants to be the number one and number two and do all of those things, and I don't know if a coach would want to bring that in because then it starts to tinker with, with the team that you already have. I look at Derek Gordon's game over the past two years, and there are certainly parts he displays that just flash out at you. A game that always comes to mind is last season as a sophomore when he dropped 25 points against Nebraska. We got to enjoy Derek Gordon for two years on the court at UMass, and he was an integral part of the team that made it to the NCAA tournament last year, and also an integral member of the LGBTQ community. So what do you think will be his lasting legacy here at UMass? Um, I think when you look back at it in, in 10 or 15 years, I think it's interesting because I think it some of it hinges on what he does after UMass and how he, if he stays in the eyes and the minds of basketball fans or if he kind of fades away. I think a lot of people will look back at Derek Gordon and say, that was a good basketball player at UMass who did a phenomenal, courageous, great thing and became the first openly gay basketball player. And I think I think any UMass fan or someone who pays attention to UMass basketball will ultimately remember that and remember a lot of the good that he brought to the community. If you, if you think back to how supportive – uh, campus was in, in the area was when the Westboro Baptist Church came a couple days later to protest Derek Gordon. That was a very powerful moment, and a very powerful day. And I think if you were on campus that day or you were following it, you'll remember um, you'll remember that, and you'll remember a lot of the good things that that Gordon was able to do, not only at UMass but for the like you said, the LGBTQ community as a whole. He's certainly done a lot here in his time in Amherst. He brought some attention to the UMass men's basketball program. Elevator in some amount the LGBTQ community, the UMass community, the level of interest in UMass basketball on campus, and so forth and so forth. His two years, I think, certainly won't be forgotten. Mark, thank you for joining the show today. No, thank you. To read the full story, Finding His Way, one year after coming out, Derek Gordon prepares to leave UMass. Visit the Daily Collegian website at www.dailycollegian.com. We'll take one more break, and when we come back, Jesse and I will wrap things up by reordering the Boston Red Sox starting pitching rotation. Stay tuned. This is Inside the Park with Marky Mark.
Welcome back to Inside the Park with Mark and Mark. I'm your host again, Mark Jean-Louis. Again, joined to on my left by Jesse Mayfield-Sheehan. And now we're going to get into some Major League Baseball. So now we've gone through about 15 and 20 games or so. The Boston Red Sox, a team that a little bit of a surprise. I, I know, you're looking at me, I'm not exactly sure. Is it 15 games? I think it's been 11. 11, thank you. I can't do math clearly. But anyways, 11 games into the season. The Red Sox, a little bit of a surprise to maybe some of us as they are currently leading the American League Eastern Division over the Baltimore Orioles, Tampa Bay Rays. And the biggest question mark going into this season was, of course, the pitching rotation. Everyone was saying during the offseason, they have absolutely no ace. Well, I decided to challenge that a little bit, so we're going to play a little bit of a game here. So, Jesse, let me ask you, if you're the manager of this team, who's your starting rotation, one through five? One through five? Well, what's the starting rotation right now? I believe they got Buckholtz, then Porcello, um, then I think it's Masterson, and then Miley, and then Kelly. Sounds about right. Um, I mean, you know, I might move yep, Kelly right. up a little bit just because he's been doing fairly well on the mound, but aside from that, I wouldn't touch it. I definitely wouldn't touch it at this point in the season. You're only 11 games in, so you've only done, like, two rotations. Um, so it's really hard to judge, and I don't think you, you shake things up based on two rotations. You let those pitchers establish some rhythm and establish some self-confidence in what they're throwing. So you give them a few chances to establish themselves. That's that's my feeling on that. I feel like it's way too early to try and shake things up. So if I got this correct, you would have Joe Kelly a little bit closer to the top, so it would be more like, I don't know, Buckholz, Porcello, Kelly, Madison, Miley, something like that? Something like that, maybe. You know, right. If I were to move things around, which again... I don't think you do, just because it's too early in the season. You don't want to mess with guys' rhythms just yet. I think at this point, I would certainly be willing to take the risk of, you know, changing the order of the rotation around, just because I think, you know, we're still early enough in the season where the Boston Red Sox can get away with doing that before they start getting themselves into a lot of trouble. And so, if I were the manager of the Red Sox and I had my choice of coming out with my own starting rotation, I would have, you know, just from what I've seen, Joe Kelly at the top of my rotation. That'd be followed by Rick Porcello. I sort of struggled a little bit with this. I sort of juggled between Rick Porcello and Clay Buckholz. I had that as my 2-3, so Clay Buckholz, I, you know, I just went with it third just because he has that comparison where either you're going to get the really good from Clay Buckholz or the really terrible from Clay Buckholz like we saw against the New York Yankees. And then at the back of the rotation, two guys that have, you know, just really sort of disappointed me to start off the season. That's Wade Miley and Justin Masterson. Especially with Justin Masterson, I look at a guy where he did great for the Red Sox, who knows how many years back, going back before the 2009 season. Then he was sent away to Cleveland, had a little bit of a time with St. Louis, and really has, aside from one good season maybe with Cleveland, he has n never really shown to any of us that he can actually be uh, a mediocre starter. He hasn't really shown that. Yeah, no, it, he has had his sh fair share of struggles. I don't think it's early, but, I mean, if Masterson does continue to struggle, I could see him being one of those guys... Like he was before um, they traded him for Victor Martinez. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where he was a guy who could pitch anywhere. You know, sort of like um, a Tim Wakefield kind of guy. He could right. start. He could be a long or middle reliever. Those things are helpful and very undervalued. A guy like that who can come in at any point in the game. Um, so I think if he continues to struggle, you put him in that sort of role. I think he's very well suited to it. But again, I think it's way too early. Because, I mean, who would you bring up right now? I, that that was also the other question, If you were to too. replace any of these guys. Yeah, that's the other question, too. I mean, if you were to decide to move Justin Madison to the bullpen, which, you know, which very well could be happening as the season progresses here, who do you have replacement in that rotation? Right now it would probably be Stephen Wright. Yeah. And, you know, as 
Impressive as an important performance he had against the New York Yankees as they were going into the 16th and 17th inning. Would you trust him being in your starting rotation as of right now? I mean, even that performance he had against the Yankees, it wasn't that impressive. He still gave up a run or two during that uh, during that outing. I mean, he pitched, he pitched about four or five innings. He pitched so you five him, innings. So you got to give him that credit. It, it was, I, I give him credit for being that kind of guy that you can bring in in any situation, mm-hmm. whether it's to start or be a long reliever, middle reliever, whatever. You know, that's such a great utility of having a knuckleball pitcher is they fit just about anywhere. But with how he pitches, I wouldn't see him as an everyday starter. Um, I just I don't see him yet at that position. He hasn't proven himself as a guy who can come in and be the starter just because he's so all over the place. He's even more overall all over the place than a guy like Buckholtz right now. Um, so I don't feel like he's the guy you call up. You know, I saw you know I saw that game against the Yankees where Stephen Wright was pitching, and you know he has that weird looking knuckleball that throws a little bit fast, sort of like a mid seventies range. That's a little bit faster than a knuckleball. His fastball doesn't really impress me all that much, and aside from that, I feel like he shies away from a lot of his other pitches, so I wouldn't necessarily put him in the starting rotation yet. Maybe a product that you can work on later on down the road, but as of right now, I wouldn't put him in there. I mean, as far as the middle of my rotation went, Rick Porcello, Clay Buckholz, Wade Miley, we, we were talking about this before. Clay Buckholz, you're going to get either the really good or the really bad yeah. or somewhere in between. And just because I have no idea what to expect on a given day, I would have him as my third. Porcello, I feel, so far, even though he gives up a lot of home runs, I think he gave up two or three against the Baltimore Orioles yesterday. Even despite that, I feel like his track record over the last couple of years is a little bit better than Buckholz. I'll put him second in my rotation. Your thoughts? I just feel like even though he can be a very up-and-down pitcher, I feel like Buckholz still has the highest ceiling of any pitcher in that rotation. You know, I mean, you look at the other guys and you're like, okay, maybe they can be okay. Um... But none of them can pitch as well as Buckles when Buckles is on. So that's why I feel like Buckles is the closest thing this team has to an ace right now. And I feel like he has to still be your number one pitcher. You still have to have some faith that maybe he can find some consistency in his game. Because he's just that step away from really being a good player. But whereas the other guys need to take a few more steps if they want to be a legitimate ace candidate. And I mean, that's fair, you know, just based off an experience level and just based on the fact that Clay Buckholz has shown before that he can be the number one ace. He's been in that situation before. We'll just see if he gets back to it. All right. So our world of sports, it has winners and it has losers. Today on the show, we'd like to recognize our winner of the week to Anthony Davis. On Saturday, the 22-year-old forward for the New Orleans Pelicans made his NBA playoff debut against the top-seeded Golden State Warriors. He put up 35 points and recorded 7 rebounds, an assist, a steal, and 4 blocks, albeit in a 106-99 loss to the Warriors. Davis' 35 points tied for the 5th most in a playoff debut in the last 40 years. So despite the loss, a lot of congratulations to him. I certainly give him my congratulations, too. I was watching that game, yes, on Saturday, and, you know, it was just a thing of beauty. And here he is, 22 years old, possibly becoming the next biggest thing in the NBA after LeBron James retires, and so the fact that he's doing this in his first playoff game, that, that, was, that was just made to watch TV right there. It was, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. But, you know, with winners, we always have losers. But in this case, we actually have no loser for this week. But in honor of the big race today, our Boston Marathon loser for this show is none other than Rosie Ruiz. It was in this race 35 years ago where Rosie infamously cheated her way to victory, leaping out of the crowd half a mile from the finish line and quote-unquote setting a new women's record in, race, in the race's history. 
Just a few problems with her claim on that one. One, no one remembered seeing her. Two, she didn't remember seeing anything along the way. And three, she never knew the first thing about running to begin with. And it didn't take long for the Boston Athletic Association to disqualify her from the race. Uh, you know, I gotta say, though, she almost fooled all of us though during that race, even though we weren't both alive back in 1980. She almost fooled all of us. She wasn't sweaty, nor tired, and improved her New York Marathon running time by 25 minutes. Unheard of! If not for all that, I think she would have gotten away with this. Jesse, I know you're about laughing about this. What are your thoughts? <laughs> it's so silly. And it's like if you leaped out of the crowd, didn't anyone see you? <laughs> like, <They> how, <laughs> how did it get this far? Well, how did you think this was going to work? The, it's, it, it, I'll, I'll give you points for having the, one of the funniest plans I've ever heard of. But there was no way that was ever going to work. It, it the problem was that she came in first, and all it came was, you know, all it really took, they interviewed that one guy, it's like, hey, it's like, how did Rosie Ruiz finish her race? Oh, I don't know, I, I felt, I just saw someone that just stumbled out of the race to like a half a mile towards the finish line. It looked like she was a little bit lost, a little bit crazy, and yeah, she finished. Ta-da! Busted! <laughs> yeah, let that be a tip. Next time you try and cheat on a marathon, finish, you know, a little lower than first. Try and finish in maybe the top ten or something, and maybe yeah. you'll get away with it. No one will remember the fourth, no one will remember the fifth. You'll get away with it then. Exactly. And now it's time for the closer, where we get one minute to answer you to listen to this questions emailed to us at itpmarkymark at outlook.com. We have four questions for you today. Jesse, here goes the first one. 41-year-old Bartolo Colon is again off to a great start this season. At this rate, is he a future Hall of Famer? Well, I think he's heading towards being a borderline Hall of Famer, but those drug convictions he had a couple years ago, I really think just sort of tipped the scale the other way, so I don't think he's a, Hall of Fame, a future Hall of Famer yet. I think he has to do something really amazing to make people forget his convictions. The defending Super Bowl champion Patriots will be hosting Georgia running back Todd Gurley for a pre-draft visit. At 32, would he be a good pick for the team? Uh, you know, he had that ACL tear last year, missed a lot of last season at Georgia, and just because of that, I'm a little bit hesitant to pick him. I know Melvin Gordon out of Wisconsin's going around that area. I feel, you know, more slighted to pick him instead. Chris Bryant went 0-4 with three strikeouts in his debut for the Cubs. Jesse, is too much being expected from the 23-year-old? Absolutely. They're expecting him to be like the second coming for this team, and that's ridiculous. He's 23. It's his first season. Also, don't judge just based on one game. I hate when people do that. So last one. Tomorrow night, game two, Celtics at the Cavs. Who you got? You know, like, I'm telling you, Common Sense is probably going to tell me to pick the Cavaliers in this one, but, you know, I mean, I might pick Boston, you know, to avenge themselves and come back in game two. I might go with Boston for this one. But that's it for us. If you liked what you heard, go on iTunes and subscribe to the Inside the Park with Marky Mark podcast available for free. You can follow me on Twitter at Mark underscore G93. That's M-A-R-C underscore J-E-A-N 93. Jesse Mayfield Sheehan is also on Twitter at J-G-M-S 88. And you can follow Mark Chiarelli of the Daily Collegiate at Mark underscore Chiarelli. That's M-A-R-K underscore C-H-I-A-R-E-L-L-I. Like the Inside the Park with Mark and Mark Page on Facebook. And if you got more questions you'd like to send to the show, email them to itpmarkmark at outlook.com. But that's all for Inside the Park for Jesse Mayfield Sheehan. I'm your host, Mark John Lee. Come on back next week for more in the world of sports. Until then, enjoy your Patriots Day, and thank you for listening.